It's a pleasure to be with you uh, and a privilege also to be with you again. It's been some years since I was here and met uh, some of you, but I'm glad to be back. And our church, Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada, California, sends you their greetings uh, from South LA County. Uh, Some of you have visited our church, especially some of the men during the pastor's conference that we host each November. So some of you have visited us and we have Alex on loan. Uh, during her Biola studies at our church oftentimes and her sister. So it's been good to get to know your pastors, get, good to get to know you. Uh, I'm thankful for this opportunity. This uh, I like to talk about a sorority of churches and a fraternity of ministers. Uh, our ministers are brothers. Well, we're all brothers in Christ, but the ministers have a certain fraternal connection the more time we spend together. And that helps our churches have a, um, a connection as sisters. And it's an, it's an enjoyable thing to see so many churches in the Southern California area. Whether you think Bakersfield is SoCal or not, that's up to you. We generally think of it in that way. It's so wonderful to see godly, faithful churches here in Bakersfield where we live. And three hours of driving, really, it's not that bad, you know, compared to what a lot of people have to drive or, or the distances they would have to drive if they wanted to visit other churches and spend time with them. So I'm very thankful for this church and for the uh, communion that we have with one another, as well as the opportunity to preach here this morning. I would ask you to please uh, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 6, the sixth Psalm. And as you're opening there or tapping buttons on your phone to get there, I want to remind you that the scriptures teach us that Jesus' death on the cross was an atoning sacrifice to satisfy God's justice by taking away our sins and by giving his righteousness, his perfect obedience to us. But in addition to this, in addition to being an atoning sacrifice, the death of Jesus on the cross and really the entirety of his sufferings leading up to his death on the cross, it's also an example for us to follow. We ought to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, living innocently and obediently and being willing to suffer for his name's sake. But the apostle Peter in his first letter that we have, he says, when he describes Jesus' sufferings, he says, to this, you have been called. You have been called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, particularly following in the footsteps of his suffering. But how do we actually do that? What does it look like to follow the footsteps of Jesus? Does that mean we have to be literally crucified in some way? Uh, uh, No, it does not mean that. What, What does it mean? How can we endure suffering as Jesus did? How can we endure even unjust suffering as Jesus did? Well, Psalm 6 will help us to understand how we can follow in Jesus' footsteps and suffer and endure suffering in a godly way, in a Christ-like way. Let's read Psalm 6, and then I have three main points to draw from this psalm. Psalm 6, this is the word of God. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. 
But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, for the rest of the sermon, there's something very important that you need to understand. And it's that these words, though they are the words of David, he he penned them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These words also represent to us the words and the feelings and the thoughts of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. David speaks, and in speaking, he at the same time portrays not only his own thoughts, but also the thoughts and the words of Jesus, which gives us in Psalm 6 an example which we can follow to say, this is a godly way to endure suffering like Jesus. Now, to consider this psalm, to study it, I want to move through three main headings or three main points drawn from Psalm 6. And the first of those is express yourself to God. Express yourself to God. Now, let me state something obvious to you. Namely, different cultures are different. You'd say, thank you, Admiral Obvious. I've been promoted from Captain Obvious to Admiral. Different cultures are different. Well, in what ways do we know that different cultures are different? Are there food and such things? Are there customs? Yes, there may be traditional dress and so on. But one of the major differences is how expressive a, a culture may be. Uh, you may grow up in a somewhat reserved and quiet culture. And someone else may grow up in a more expressive, communicative, or louder culture. It's one of those things that just is different from place to place and time to time and even family to family. These are generalizations, aren't they? When I think of Europeans and I think of communicative, non-communicative, expressive, non-expressive, without intending any offense, I would say that Italians would probably be on the more expressive side. And then Finns or Scandinavians tend to be on the less expressive side. It's just culture. Is it one good or bad? No, it's just sort of the way that they are. Italians are famously social and Finns are infamously antisocial. The only ones who really were happy about uh, lockdowns during COVID. Wait, we just get to stay home and not interact with anyone? Great, the Finns said. Not all of them, of course. We're, we're generalizing, but we, we know, we get it. Different cultures are different. Some are more expressive than others. Now, this bleeds into or this overlaps with the church. Different churches or church traditions also have a kind of culture oftentimes. And the, the Christianity that you grow up in, the church culture that you are raised in or spend a lot of time in can also be more or less expressive in different ways. Now, 
what is godly expression of feeling or emotion? Uh, Which one is right? Which one is wrong? Which one is good? Which one is bad? Uh, People may argue about those kinds of things, and it's not a very profitable argument, but we can look at something like Psalm 6 and find a clear example of godliness, appropriateness, in a very free expression of the psalmist's feelings, David's feelings, but more so the feelings and thoughts and words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, what we see in Psalm 6 is a very expressive um, communication of enduring suffering. And what we're seeing is the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha. The agony of Jesus in Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prayed for hours with intensity, with intensity expressing himself to God? Jesus cried out. The disciples, their spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. They were sleeping. But Jesus was engaged in fervent, expressive prayer. And so we look at him and we look at his example and we say, this is right. This is good. If Jesus did it, if Jesus was so expressive, if Jesus was so fervent, then we ought to say, that's the way I want to be too. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, It says this, it says, In the days of Jesus' flesh, when he lived among us on this world, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So we see two things. We see loud cries and tears, and we see reverence. Loud cries and tears are not irreverent. Loud cries and tears are specifically labeled in this case as reverent. So Jesus, his earnestness, his intensity, his vehemence in his prayer in Gethsemane is considered to be reverent. Psalm 6 shows us that same kind of intensity. Look at verses 1 through 6 again with me, where we see loud cries and tears. Psalm 6 again, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. Jesus said in the garden, my soul is troubled unto death. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. If you read Psalm 6 and you say, David, you're so emotional. What's wrong with you? Come on, get yourself under control. Then we're not reading it rightly. This is also representing Jesus to us. And Hebrews specifically tells us that these loud cries and tears were also reverent. Now, you may think, no, I I shouldn't express myself to God 
because if it's God's will that I endure affliction, then who am I to pray that he would remove it when he's permitting this affliction in my life? But look at Psalm 6, turn, O Lord. In other words, change things. Deliver my life. How long, O Lord? It's not inappropriate to say, how long, O Lord? It's not inappropriate to say, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Psalm 6 shows us sanctified emotion, earnest agony. Now, the pit we have to avoid, the extreme that we have to avoid, is that there is such a thing as excess of emotion. There's also such a thing as sinful emotions. Not all loud cries and tears are right. Not all loud cries and tears are just. Not all loud cries and tears are reverent. But neither are they necessarily wrong or irreverent. So emotion is not bad. Expressive emotion is not bad, but excess of emotion or sinful emotion certainly is bad. We must not be overcome by our emotion. But Psalm 6 is not a man overcome to the point of leading him to sin, but rather it is an earnestness. It is indeed a reverent expressiveness. In terms of our human emotions or passions, as we might call them, we need to remember that it's not sin to grieve over that which is grievous or to be sad about that which is truly saddening or even to be angry when something is unjust and unright because the scriptures say, be angry and do not sin, (laughs) right? There is a just anger. There is a just sadness. There is a just um, earnestness and and agony that that we express to God. Jesus endured hardship in both body and soul, agony in his flesh and heart, and we see him expressing that. But in so doing, as Jesus expresses himself in Gethsemane especially, viewed through Psalm 6, he's not defying. He's not a, this Psalm 6 is not defiant expression, is it? He's not accusing. It's not an accusatory expression but rather it's a petition, it's a plea, asking for mercy, asking for relief, asking for deliverance, asking for healing, and asking for this in God's timing. And that's really the key phrase, isn't it? Express yourself to God. That's the first point, but that brings us to the second point, which is entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. If we express ourselves openly, oh Lord, how long? We have to ask that question, how long? Not again with defiance or accusation, but with a humble entrusting of ourselves to God. The sanctified way to express ourselves to God is to entrust ourselves to him. We we set sail to our petitions. We send them to God but we trust, we entrust our petitions to him. We entrust ourselves to him. And we're told that Jesus did this too. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, the apostle Peter says that when Jesus was reviled and suffered, when he was enduring the hardship of his passion, it says he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus was both expressive of his agony and his petition that the cup 
be removed from him, but he also continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. And we see this in Psalm 6 when the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, I submit this to you. It's not, it's not like the child that says, When's dinner? When's dinner? How long are we there yet? Are we there yet? It's not that kind of demand and impatience, but rather, oh Lord, in your timing, how long? In your providence, in your sovereignty, in your wisdom, how long, oh Lord? It's a humble petition. It's a humble request. It's a humble entrusting and submitting of oneself to God. Now, in order to explain this further, the ways in which we entrust ourselves to God or that we can entrust ourselves to God, I'd like you to consider with me under this heading three subpoints. In the first place, remember that God's anger is not a passion. God's anger is not a passion. Look at verse one with me. Psalm 6, verse 1 says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. So we have a nice typical Hebrew parallelism, two things put in parallel. Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Anger and wrath. How are we to think of the anger and the wrath of God towards us, his children? How can I entrust myself to God if he gets angry at me? How can I entrust myself to God if, if, he's, if his wrath is going to be provoked against me? If he's a God that, that can be poked with a stick and then he gets mad at you, how can I entrust myself to that God? He's just like me. And when you make me angry, um, it doesn't go so well for everybody, does it? We, we need to understand there's a, a world of difference between anger as we know it, wrath as we know it, and what we call anger or wrath in God. So let me explain that briefly. In man, in you and me, our anger or wrath, I'm just going to use those words interchangeably, they're paralleled here. Our anger or our wrath, just like other emotions or passions, are movements. You move me to anger and you can move me out of anger. Uh, you cut me off on the road, I'm angry. You, you raise your hand and say, sorry about that. I'm not angry anymore. It's like, okay, he said he was sorry. You know, it's no big deal. There's a red light. I'm upset. There's a green light. I'm happy. Uh, you're hungry one moment. You're upset. You have a Snickers bar. You're back to normal. So for us, here's the key word here is motions. Our anger, our sadness, our happiness, our, our joy, all these things, they are motions. We are moved to those states of being and we can be moved out of those states of being. And this is why James says in James 1 verse 20, he says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We, there is a just and right anger. When, when we see someone abusing someone else, when we see injustice, it is right that an in, in indignation fills the heart and you say, I want that criminal, I want that perpetrator, I want that person who's doing evil to someone else to be punished. I want to see justice brought down upon that evildoer. That is a righteous anger. But sadly, 99.99% repeating percent of our anger is the James 1.20 anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We go far beyond justice. We go to vengeance. We go to personal uh, revenge. 
we go to, I want you to suffer more and more and more and more without the possibility of mercy and so on and so forth. Our anger often goes well beyond the boundaries that God has set for such a thing. So our understanding of anger is you have moved me to it by annoying me, provoking me, hurting me, harming me, etc. That's made me angry. And now I'm going to tend to lash out and re- revenge myself. Uh, revenge myself. That's actually the proper terminology. You avenge someone else and you revenge yourself. I'm going to revenge myself upon you. Now, what is all, why do we say all this? Because God is described as angry and wrathful here, and how should we understand it? Can I entrust myself to a God who gets angry and wrathful? Well, we should understand that God doesn't get angry. God doesn't get angry at us like people do. Rather, what is the anger of God? The anger of God is a name. It's human language for something in God, namely God's justice. When God's justice punishes someone wicked or for doing something wicked, when the justice of God punishes wickedness, we call that his anger or his wrath. When the justice of God approves something that is righteous, we call that his vindication or or his approbation, his approval. But it's the same justice that's approving the righteous and disapproving of and punishing the wicked. And when the wicked are punished or threatened, we call that wrath and anger. But what has happened in God? Nothing has happened in God. He hasn't gotten angry. He hasn't become provoked and and some fire in God has been activated and now he's burning with this intensity. God's not like us. He doesn't have passions and switches that get turned off and things that can be moved all around in him like us. He has perfect, unchanging justice and holiness that cannot possibly be disturbed by little creatures like you and me. But I will begin to feel his chastisement and then that chastisement may come to an end. So the anger of God towards me is not some big deity that's really mad at me and then he's been pacified somehow or he forgot about it, but rather it's God's perfect wisdom and justice that is disciplining me as his child for the time that he has seen fit to prepare me and train me up, which means I can absolutely entrust myself to God knowing that his anger and his wrath is not an angry parent or an angry governor or an angry uh, military person or someone who has power and passion to destroy me. No, rather it's a perfect, just, loving, wise God who, what else do the scriptures say? Those whom he loves, he disciplines. So his anger or wrath is not like a passion in us. It's his wise, fatherly discipline from perfect, unchanging justice combined with wisdom. Can we entrust ourselves to God and call him angry, understanding his anger in this way? Absolutely. The children that are raised with discipline that is consistent and explained and measured, they trust their parents. 
They're not afraid, what's mommy or daddy going to do to me? Because they know certain things are disciplined in certain ways, and it's consistent, and it's given in the right way, and there's forgiveness afterwards. They, they trust their parents, but the child who's not sure what in the world mommy or daddy is going to do to, to discipline me, they, they don't have the same level of trust. Well, take that where we do find a level of trust in human relationships and multiply it times infinity where we have perfect trust in God who disciplines us with fatherly love and wisdom. Entrust yourselves to God. But isn't he angry and wrathful? Yes, but what does that mean? It's his chastisement and discipline. His anger is not a passion. Secondly, the second thing we need to understand as we entrust ourselves to God is that the afflictions that God permits, they will apply to both our bodies and our souls. The afflictions that God permits in our lives apply to both our bodies and our souls. We see this in Psalm 6 very clearly where the psalmist expresses physical distress and spiritual distress. He says in verses 2 and 3, I am languishing, heal me. And so that's a general statement of languishing, of, of decay and trouble. And then he says, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also, so moving from the flesh to the spirit, my soul also is greatly troubled. And this is important because you can entrust your physical afflictions to God, and you can also entrust your spiritual afflictions to God. We need to look at sickness in the body and say, God is teaching me to entrust myself to him in the weakness and the pain of my body. As my bones are troubled, he's teaching me to entrust myself to him in that pain. And, or also, as the psalmist says, we need to look at trouble in the soul, sorrow and grief and lack of hope and darkness and say, God is teaching me to entrust myself to him in the darkness of my heart's night. We will pass through travail of soul, as well as pain of body. And both of these are permitted by God in his wise providence to sanctify us, which brings us to the third thing that we need to remember under this heading. And trust yourselves to God because in the third place, God's permission is purposeful. God's permission is purposeful. Why does God permit affliction in my soul? Why does God permit affliction in my body? Is it because, well, he's, he's mad at me and he just wants me to suffer as though suffering is an end in itself that God has appointed for you? Absolutely not. That would, that would induce a madness of the mind. God is just pushing me under his fingers, smushing me like an ant. No, 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 and no again. God's permission of afflictions in body and soul are purposeful. I need to trust God that when he permits these afflictions in my life, it is with a purpose, not as an end in itself, but as a means to an end, to sanctify me, to purify me by testing and proving my faith in order to accomplish his holy purposes and bring glory to his own name. Peter tells us in 1 Peter that Various and necessary trials are coming our way. 
but that they refine us. They purify us. Are the trials an end in themselves? In themselves? No, they are there to purify and to prove the genuineness, the purity of our faith to build us up. And so as Jesus cries out, as David cries out, the Psalm 6 expressing both of their hearts, how long, O Lord, then we are both expressing our petitions to God and entrusting ourselves to God, showing our faith, showing our faith to be genuine. O Lord, how long I trust you as long as it is. I entrust myself as long as that will be because I know that whatever your permission in this case will be, however long you have ordained that this will last, it is for a purpose. It is for my good ultimately and for your glory above that. And so we recognize that in God's sovereignty and providence, these afflictions will last as long as God has appointed that they should last. Now, for some, that doesn't sound like relief at all. Why? They might say, how is this a relief for me that God says, when I ask how long, he says, long, (laughs) long. How is that a relief to me? How can I entrust myself to God if God's purpose is that I continue to suffer? But we need to remember that God's timing is not our timing. Paul expressed himself to God and asked for his affliction to be removed, but God allowed it to remain. Some people drench their bed in tears and are drowning in their own sorrow, crying out. And those weary and worn out children, they may say, how can I entrust myself to one who may not take away my affliction? Well, here's the answer. Because God most certainly has taken away your afflictions and he will take away your afflictions. What do I mean by that? Remember whose footsteps we are following and whose example we are imitating. How far did Jesus' sufferings go? All the way. All the way to death. He laid down his life. He did not turn away. He said, how long, O Lord, using Psalm 6 to express his mind, he said, take this cup away. Nevertheless, your will be done. And he went obediently, perfectly obedient. He went all the way to death. Jesus fully and finally accomplished his mission of suffering in our place, in both body and soul. And what did he say on the cross? Jesus said, it is finished. It is brought to completion. I have ended it. And then what did he say after he rose from the dead? We read in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, fear not. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So this means if, I say, if we ask, how do I entrust myself to God if God's permission is that my suffering lasts until my death? We need to realize because God has put an end to our suffering in Jesus Christ, such that when we die, all that suffering ceases. He has taken away all my afflictions and he will take away all my afflictions through his death and his resurrection 
And because I am united to him by faith, so also my death leads to a resurrection. All, and brothers and sisters, what this means is that all of my present physical suffering and all of my present soul suffering has been bounded, it has been limited, and it has been guided like a canal that channels water to accomplish God's purposes and prepare me for that glory that Jesus has won for me. This is our time of suffering. This is our exile. This is our hell on earth. But that's it. That's all. God says, endure it for now. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter, for a time. What I like to call the in-between. The Israelites were exiled for 70 years. God, in a sense, exiles us for 70 years here. He says, live in exile for 70 years and then come home to Jerusalem. And he also told the Israelites to submit to that exile. We also must submit to these sufferings in body and soul. Am I saying don't do anything to try to remove sufferings of body or sufferings of soul? No, of course. But recognize that they will be a part of life while we live here. But it's all been bounded and guided. It's all been limited. It's all been permitted with purposeful permission. And so we entrust ourselves to God knowing that his anger is not a passion, knowing that his permission is purposeful as he allows afflictions in both our bodies and souls, bounding it all by the death of Jesus. In the third place, our third and final point, expect the glory of God. Expect the glory of God. We've said that now, the in-between, the, the for a time, is our time of suffering and affliction. And then what? And then what? Expect the glory of God. Psalm 6 shows Christ in agony of body and soul, afflicted and bowed down, but that's not how the psalm ends. That's not how the psalm ends at all. We know that his prayer was heard, that his sacrifice was accepted, that his suffering ended, that he was raised from the dead, that he was exalted and glorified and rewarded as our triumphant conquering Lord and Savior. And look at verses 8 through 10. In verses 8 through 10, Jesus is now victorious, risen from the dead. The victorious and glorious Jesus Christ says in verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. There are many Psalms like Psalm 6 where the Davidic king or the psalmist is surrounded by his enemies and cries out to God to deliver him. And verse 10 is the reversal of fate against the enemies of Jesus Christ. Those who rejected him, those who despised him, those who were his enemies, they will be greatly ashamed, greatly troubled, turned back, and put to shame. It's in a moment, the scriptures say. 
And so I must direct myself preaching this psalm to Jesus' enemies, to all those who are Jesus' enemies, to all those who look at the cross of Christ and they see the crucified Christ who is then risen from the dead and they just say, okay, that's nice. They don't believe. They don't believe in him. And there's no neutrality. Not to believe is to disbelieve. Not to believe is to reject. There's no I'm making up my mind. There's no I'm waiting to see. There's no I'm finding out. You believe and you trust in Jesus Christ and you are a co-heir with him or you are his enemy because you refuse to bow. And if you have made that choice, that bitter choice, and refused to bow, you must be warned. You're like the prodigal son who says, I'll have my inheritance here and now, please. I'll have all my pleasure, all my joy here on earth. And in so doing, you're seeking finite joys and fleeting pleasures. But what is their end? What is the end of those things that you pursue? And what is your end in pursuing them? Psalm 610 says your end is shame and great trouble because for the unbeliever, finite satisfaction, and there is is a, a, a real satisfaction in much sin, but it's finite. It leads to infinite suffering. Finite satisfaction, that that fleeting moment of satisfaction in sin disappears and leads to infinite suffering. If you despise the cross and the one who hung on it, your fate is certain. And do you know what that fate will be? For those who choose to have all their satisfaction and pleasure in this life and refuse to bow to Christ and believe in him and to hurry after him in the way of the cross, do you know what the great trouble will be? The darkness of hell will terrify you. The flames of hell will torture you. It is a place you cannot escape where you will die in fear and pain forever. And your conscience will sting you constantly. All that wickedness that once was your pride will be your everlasting shame. All that sinful satisfaction that you sought will become a bitter and sour taste that you can never forget. And you will not be able to escape that conscience. You will know what you have done. You will know that it was wrong. You will know that it was a lie. And you will wail and groan and rage and die in shame and regret forever and ever and ever. But do you know what the greatest torment and terror of hell will be? Do you know what the worst sentence upon the wicked is? We can consider the sharp pains of that body which is raised up for destruction. We can consider the wrenching madness of your soul, but none of that will compare to this sentence in Psalm 6 verse 9. Depart from me. Depart from me. There's something that every single man, woman, and child wants. There's something that the soul of man longs for and needs that God has woven into the very fiber of our being. It's not food. It's not drink. It's not health. health, It's not wealth. It's not fame. It's not family. There's a desire, a deep desire, a longing 
that God has planted in every single person. And what is it that we need? What is it that we are longing for? It is God himself. It is the light of God, the knowledge of God, the vision of God, the favor of God, the glory of God, the face of God. It's God that we need. It's God that we want. It's God that we desire because the soul longs for an infinite satisfaction. And there is only one infinite satisfaction, which is God himself. The love and the light of God poured into our souls is the most beautiful blessedness that man can experience. And it is our most fundamental need and most profound desire. And Jesus Christ, the one who once hung upon a cross, will say to the wicked, depart from me. You may remember that Jesus quoted this psalm during his earthly ministry recorded in Matthew 7 and Luke 13. And when Jesus pronounces this, depart from me, what will happen? Jesus says, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment because they will depart to darkness, to dissatisfaction, and to everlasting despair. True despair. Hopelessness. A realization that your greatest desire, the one thing that can satisfy you forever and ever, has just banished you. And you will be deprived of that which gives eternal life and blessedness forever. And when that sentence from Jesus is pronounced, depart from me, the deepest part of your being will ache and tremble. And that sentence will ring in your ears forever and ever tormenting you with endless despair as you suddenly realize on a level you never did before and say, no, wait, anything but that, anything but being separated from you, anything but departing from you, Jesus, please, anything, anything but that. But the good news of the gospel is that that day is not yet come. We are here. We are now. And to us now, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, The Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then he says in John chapter 6, verses 37 and 40, He says, whoever comes to me now, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So Psalm 6 reminds us that God heard Jesus' prayer. And we know the ultimate outcome for all those who trust in Jesus Christ. That ultimate outcome is not death and it's not darkness. It's not silence and it's not Sheol. It is light and life and glory, everlasting joy. Consider that glory won by Jesus Christ, which is ours, which is ours certainly and unstoppably. Expect the glory of God. In Adam, our first father, he fell short of that glory. And man became sinful, corrupted, polluted, unable and unfit to enjoy God's presence and glory. But in the work of Christ applied to us by the Holy Spirit, Jesus has already begun a work in us to sanctify the soul. We have been born again unto a living hope, Peter says. So that glory has already begun in us. 
The power of the resurrection, the power to defeat sin and death has already impacted and penetrated our being in in regeneration and sanctification. And God is working in us to build that up. What about our bodies? We know that the soul is already receiving that eternal life influencing us. What about the body? Well, the body's doing the opposite, isn't it? You can feel every day more and more the aches and the pains, that, that mortal entropy that leads unto death for all of us. But even in this, we expect the glory of God. Why? Because we know that the body that is buried is but a seed. And that Jesus has promised to raise up on the last day all those who trust in him. So I know that my soul is already being influenced with vitality, eternal vitality. And I know that my body is merely a seed and a deposit for eternal life and vitality for a new resurrected body that will not be susceptible to corruption, that will not be susceptible to mortality, that will not be susceptible to anything that would diminish it or harm it. And I know that when I die now, my soul will be perfected. My soul will be glorified and I will experience the glory of God as a soul, yet not having a body as a soul, having a clear knowledge and vision of God, which will satisfy me, which will delight me forever and ever and ever. And I know that when Jesus raises up my body and I have a perfected soul and a perfected body and the two united together, then in the greatest fullness possible, I will enjoy and delight in the presence and the glory of God forever and ever and ever and ever. And you know what's so beautiful about that vision of God that we will have, that vision of blessedness, that beatific vision. It's that it's a ravishing, rapturous delight that is so great and infinite that it will delight us and satisfy us forever. And you will never need or want anything else. We tend to, especially in our younger years, we tend to think of heaven as some kind of idealized version of whatever we like then and there. Oh, so I get to play ice hockey forever and ever? Oh, we get ice cream forever and ever? Uh, No. (laughs) And if you think that way, if your idea of heaven is some created good delighting you forever, you may have this lingering doubt that you try to keep quiet that says, will you really be happy with that forever? And you think, well, I hope so, but I'm not sure. But when we say, that God will be our joy and our delight and his glory will fill us and satisfy us forever. Could you possibly look away? Could you possibly be drawn away when God has so perfected the soul that nothing else could even tempt you away from that? You, you, you will not even be able to look away from that beauty. You will not be able to fall away from it. You can expect this glory. And when I say expect, I mean that true Christian hope that Jesus has already risen from the dead. It is sure and certain. It is done. It is finished. He is raised. He is risen. He is ascended. He has sat down. It is done. So for those who are in suffering and affliction in body and soul, they need to remember that as we entrust ourselves to God, even if that means enduring affliction all our lives unto death, that's as far as it goes. And we can expect glory over that and beyond that. 
Jesus has overpowered and destroyed death. Jesus has overcome the grave and sin. The law has no charge against us. Our souls, as one said, will not be required of us, but received by God. The rich fool who said, I have stored up things for myself, be satisfied soul and and live. God said, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Our souls will not be required of us. Our souls will be received by God. And as many have said, rightly so, heaven will make amends for all. The suffering that we find so difficult to endure now will pale in comparison to the glory then. The affliction that we bear here will fade and be forgotten as the joy of the glory of God overpowers all human sin and sorrow and suffering. When those tears are wiped away from our eyes, we won't remember why we were crying in the first place. So I ask you this, brothers and sisters in Christ, believers, will you have your inheritance now or will you wait for it? Would you be excused from the suffering of this world and given an, would you prefer to be given an earthly glory now? Would you seek pleasure and prosperity here and now at the expense of service and love and faith to Christ? Would you give up the way of the cross and following the footsteps of Jesus and say, no, I want my glory now? Wouldn't that be folly and lack of faith? Why? Because finite suffering leads to infinite joy. Finite suffering leads to infinite satisfaction. God says, endure these things for now and I will bring you home to an infinite and perfect glory. So brothers and sisters, express yourselves to God and trust yourselves to God and expect the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake, seated at your right hand. And answer this prayer that we might express ourselves in a true, right, and godly way, not suppressing our emotion, but sanctifying our emotion. We pray that you would help us to entrust ourselves to you, not with some kind of fatalism, but with a childlike trust, knowing that your chastisement is love, knowing that your permission is purposeful, knowing that both our bodies and our souls are being prepared for a future glory and help us to set our hearts on that glory and expect it, to wait for it eagerly, to long for it, but give us patience until that time. Help us to be good soldiers. Help us to persevere and endure. We pray that you would continue to sanctify us and work in our hearts and give us joy all along the way until you take us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.